welcome back to another daily walk. So uh, I wanted to spend some time today um, looking at another section in the Lucifer Principle here. Um, and I'm only about, uh, I think I'm about halfway, maybe a little less than halfway through this entire section. Uh, but what I wanted to really address some major fallacies that the author has presented here. Um, so the section is called Man, the Inventor of the Invisible World. And one of the biggest fallacies he does in this section is he makes this jump from genes to memes is the first thing. Of course, in our modern internet age, we're very well acquainted with the concept of a meme, um, with a meme being... Um, you know, a, a grouping, a picture, a, a selection, a, a something that has lent itself to, uh, to some other greater meaning. And, and the biggest fallacy that the author is doing here is we are attaching, and I find this a lot in this book, attaching an anthropomorphic property to a physical principle. And that is a major fallacy because if you want to take the approach that there is no God, that everything is bound by the laws and by the restrictions of the physical world, then we cannot add anthropomorphic qualities to things and call that what nature just happened to do. And what I mean by this is he spent the first several sections that we've gone through looking at genes and genetics and all that kind of stuff. And basically saying that it's the genes are doing this in there. And I even hinted at this earlier where it's the genes somehow got together. And even the guys that want to deny God cannot help but to use the word miracle to talk about how these genes somehow formed. So from here, they're saying, well, it's not just the genes, because if you look at just the genes, it still doesn't explain a lot of the uh, principles, etc., that we have encountered. And so we have to move even beyond that level and say, well, it must be memes. The organisms themselves, no, without any external God, just on the basis of the physical world, somehow organizes themselves into these groups of societies where the groups of societies that are somehow created in the midst of this world without a God somehow produce all of the order and structure in societies that we see today. That's a lot of leaps to go without there being an ultimate God. And um, what I actually wanted to spend most of the time on, though, is uh, the second chapter in this section. It is entitled, The Nose of a Rat in the Human Mind, A Brief History of the Rise of the Meme. Um, and so, of course, if you did pick up a copy of this and you're following along, that's kind of where we're at. So on page 103, uh, they don't talk about this experiment. So basically they say, well, it's the, uh, it's the rat. You know, the rats are obsessed with those who share their genes. Note that rats are obsessed with those who share their genes. And then the author goes through this painstaking process. So if you take rats in their family nests, they are very protective of their family nests. Just like ancient humans were very protective uh, of our individual clans and nests and whatever else. We will generally help those that we have grown up with. We generally despise those outside forces that we may perceive as a threat. And so they talk about, you know, how the rats will always have physical contact, be walking all over each other, all this kind of stuff. That's kind of what they're talking about. All right. Um, and then, of course, they talk about, you know, if a rat determines that there's poison in some food, they'll, they'll, uh, engage in bodily waste on the food so that the, the family members don't eat it. That's that degree of protection. And then what they, what he tries to say though, is that, that somehow the rats even move from despising their own genes somehow. All right. 
somehow. That's kind of what, what the principle was. And so he explains this experiment. Um, so uh, near the top of page 103, chances are if two rats are sprouting the same aroma, they're carrying the same genes. That's a pretty big logical fallacy. All right. Uh, basically, you're looking at family. So basically, he's saying that if the rats have each other's basic scents and basic smells and basic whatevers, then that in and of itself is is enough to call it family. That's the same principle we would do. Of course, we have stories like, you know, dances with wolves or, you know, um, where the guy that the you know, the, the American in the, in the early times becomes assimilated into the Native American culture. Obviously, initially, there was a lot of warring, a lot of feuding, but there was some assimilation. So what he says is here is that, that um, chances are if two rats are sporting the same aroma, they're carrying the same genes. That's the big fallacy, because the aroma doesn't come from your genes. The aroma comes in your upbringing. Families, human families have different smells and odors and scents between them. If you are acute enough, you can spot that. Okay, Since a pair were raised in the same spot, it's probably more likely the pair was raised in the same spot. Therefore, they smell the same. It has nothing to do with your genes and genetics. Um, foster kids, a good example. They don't necessarily share the genes and genetics with anyone else, but living in the same circumstances will have bring on the same family characteristics. And they're probably by the same mother and father, unless some experimenter decides to muck things up. That's what one scientist did. He removed a rat from its nest, washed the complaining creature off, and then rubbed it thoroughly with the shavings of another nest. In other words, we are taking this rat removing all of the familiar scents and then rubbing it down with another nest. Okay. Then the experimenter put the innocent beast back in its own home where it should have been safe among its brothers and sisters. Unfortunately for the furry victim, he'd returned home wearing the wrong cologne. His loving family, blind to his familiar physical appearance, bared their teeth and lunged. When the experiment was over, the unwitting animal was dead, killed by those who previously hugged and snuggled him. Smell had told the brood that their brother was carrying the wrong set of genes. In this case, the noses of the rats misled them. You have got to be incompetent to look at that experiment and say, oh boy, some non-force is somehow... Yeah, you took an animal out of its surroundings, you took off the scent, you put another scent on it, you put it back in there, and the animals perceived it as an intruder. That's the physical course of the world. But he tries to make this and say, well, this is how the memes happen. This is how the, it moves from the genes to the societies. What the researchers didn't do, they didn't try and do it in reverse. Take a rat from another colony, wash it off, run it with shavings of theirs, put it in there, and I bet that they would snuggle each other because they have the same scent. Now, the reason I want to get on this is, is they dive into a lot of Hebrew culture next, and the author clearly misunderstands the Old Testament, the Old Testament faith, and the Old Testament practices. Um, because he talks here about the Old Testament, um, you know, to belong, you had to have the right genetic stuff. How can an early Hebrew tell if you were entitled to insider treatment? Your God, your mannerisms and all your outward labels of your genetic contents. Memes were equivalent to the rat's perfume. It had nothing to do with genetics. It had nothing to do with genetics. Um, 
It had to do with obedience to the God, the, the, the law that Mo- Moses had handed down from God. That's what it had to do with. And while they were not active at proselytizing, that wasn't part of their culture or their command to proselytize, but rather to divide, there are also clear examples, uh, Ruth being a clear example, Rahab being a clear example, two outside women who are both included in the genealogy of Jesus, not because they had the same genetics, but because they renounced their old ways and adopted the ways of the culture, the meme, as it were. And that's the general principle, is it didn't have anything to do with with your genetics. It had to do with your associations. The Old Testament is certainly a different thing. And all of those cultures God said wipe out wasn't just indiscriminate murdering of innocent people. Read back into Genesis, uh, I think it's Genesis 15 or 16 or so, and you'll read that... Uh, that God is prophesying to Abraham that, that he makes this covenant with Abraham, puts him into a deep sleep, walks between uh, the, the, the split calf while Moses, or, uh, well, excuse me, Abraham is asleep. And what this means and signifies is that no matter what Abraham does, God's covenant lasts. Walking between the, the two carved meat was their way of holding a covenant at that time. All right. And so there he, after he makes this covenant, then he says, your children are going to go and be enslaved for 400 years, which is exactly what happened in Egypt. He says, and then I will draw you out of the land for a very specific reason. For the sins of the Amorites is not yet full. Okay, the people that God was having wiped out were not just innocent people, just indiscriminate murdering because God said. These were people who had religious practicing of sacrificing their children, who were engaged in out-of-control sex, things completely against the moral law of God then and now. These were not just innocent people. It was entire cultures so wicked and so vile, God used Israel to wipe them off of the planet. That's what was going on. Of course, the author here doesn't understand any of that. All right. So he goes over and says, well, the human groups grew larger. Memes became detached from genes. All right. In the days of the Old Testament, memes seldom made an effort to leap from one gene pool to another. Again, adding anthropomorphic qualities to a principle is not an appropriate thing in a world devoid of a god. This makes C.S. Lewis's great argument, if there is a moral law, there must be a moral law giver. If memes are somehow going to attach to anthropomorphic qualities and develop into separate groups based on different belief patterns, there is there not some God behind it to direct that? Because there is no physical law for how ideas move. There's just physical laws for how everything else moves. And then, of course, he he has to end the thing uh, in total ignorance talking about the Apostle Paul, basically saying, oh, Jesus just had all these, these, in fact, he even says in here, a redneck sect. (laughs) The author actually uses that on page 104. The redneck sect. Okay. Saul for sort of this redneck sect, and they describe the initial apostles as as all just being being uneducated Galileans. Uh, No. There were a few of them that were certainly uneducated Galileans. We also had a, a tax collector. We also had um, a, a zealot. We also had, you know, and we don't know some about, about some of them. But there were, the, the apostles were from a variety of walks of life. 
Now, none of them were rock-solid, highly educated Pharisees like Paul. So that point definitely stands that he makes. But he says, after his death, Jesus acquired a new kind of... Let's go actually read a little bit further up. Um, uh, so you can see the gene-free God unfolding in the days of the New Testament. Jesus was a Jew. All available evidence indicates that, like the other Jews of his time, he felt his God was a genetic one. Uh, no? No. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot that says that Jesus knew his mission was going to be to the Gentiles not yet but to the Gentiles gives his life for all the world all right the only people to whom Jesus preached were other Jews and alone were the folks whom his God and his DNA were attached Jesus was crucified most of his followers um most of his disciples followed in his footsteps, trying to convince Jews that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Like the tribal God he served, a Messiah would aid only the people who carried the chosen genes. Again, the command was to go into the world and preach the gospel. That is the Great Commission. The problem is the people. They weren't following Jesus' command. They were wanting to stay there and do that. It wasn't Jesus' command to stay there and only preach to the Jews. That's what persecution did. Paul came in, he persecuted the church. That's what caused the initial spread and spread Christianity, the beginning spark of Christianity through the Roman world, because it wasn't just about the genes. It was to go out into the whole world and preach the gospel, to go out into the whole world. The disciples at the time did have a hard time with that, and that's why it didn't happen quite as readily as it should have. He says, after his death, Jesus acquired a new kind of apostle. The fo original followers of the carpenter from Nazareth had been simple people from the hills of Galilee. Not all of them, but um, poor backwoods folk with only the most rudimentary education. The figure who had transformed Christianity was the city sophisticate with a university education. I could spend hours on this topic, so I'm not going to. His name was Saul. He knew the aspects of the, wor uh, of the world the original disciples had never dreamed of. Education was the thing. Despite, Paul says, it's not about your education. In fact, he says, I will denounce my education to preach the simplicity of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins. He'd grown up in the cosmopolitan of... Tarsus, whatever that word is, I have my apologies, city of Tarsus, a bustling center of city trade for men all over the Roman Empire. Uh, it goes on, Saul was a Johnny-come-lately to the teachings of Jesus. He didn't even get involved until after Christ was dead. When Saul first heard of the redneck sect, he was so infuriated, he organized squads of vigilantes, broke into the homes of Christian Jerusalemites, and hauled inhabitants off to prison. Then Saul volunteered to bust up the community of Christians in Damascus. No, he that wasn't a volunteer. It was he desired to go do so. <laughs> there wasn't some council. Hmm, who should break up the guys in Damascus? It's like Paul's going. No, I'm going to go prosecute these people. But on the road to the northern city, Saul had a strange experience. He felt enveloped in light. He heard the voice of Jesus, the deceased leader, who whose views he deplored. Saul became Saint Paul and dubbed himself the newest of Jesus' apostles. Dubbed himself? No. Then freshly minted holy man went off to win others to his idiosyncratic notions of what Jesus' teachings were all about. <laughs> to quote John MacArthur, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? 
that's the problem is um, the author here, he makes a lot of leaps about who Paul is, who Christianity is. And the biggest issue I wanted to talk about is that he tries to talk with this anthropomorphic thing called a meme that somehow brings up and organizes without any form of outside God or intervention. And that's where we start getting a problem. Thank you for tuning in. Our Walk in Christ podcast is a listener-supported presentation. For more information about how you can help, check out ourwalkinchrist.com forward slash support or our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Tom M. That's T-O-M-M. Digital and paperback books are available on several online bookstores or at our website. Once again, the website is ourwalkinchrist.com.